Introducing Mortgage Matters. He has no idea how bad it is out there. He has no idea. A show dedicated to helping you navigate a challenging and ever-changing financial and real estate landscape. The economy continues to face numerous difficulties. Now, your hosts, Dan Podesto and Jason Grody of Central Coast Lending. The fact that you're being called upon to help clean up Wall Street's mess is an outrage. Broadcasting outrage. live from the KVEC studios in San Luis Obispo. What economy are you talking about? Talking it's about, time for about. Mortgage Matters. Hello. Welcome. Good morning. Dan's wrangling headphone issues over here. Must have been three months since you last charged your headphones. Something like that. You think it'd give you a warning, you know? Nah, a little beep or a tone. Well, good morning, everybody. Happy June. Can't believe it's already June. I suppose it's got not. the June gloom going on today too, boy. Down a here bit, a little yeah, bit, a bit yeah. yeah. It was already pretty toasty up in uh, North County. I'll take the June gloom. It's not on the coast, I'll tell you that. You guys no. got to be socked in out there. Oh yeah. Uh, yesterday, I saw that in the John Lindsay report there was a fifty degree swing between inlands and coastal. <laughs> and if I if I wasn't so busy yesterday or today, I'd probably go over and enjoy your air conditioning at the beach. Yeah. There it is. Yeah. Well, you got a nice cool studio right now. Actually, it's kind of frigid in here usually. Yeah, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's really not that bad. The North County listeners know you get it. Mm-hmm. When you get up in the morning, you shut all your windows. Like as soon as you wake up, keep the house cool yeah. almost the whole day. Then maybe late afternoon it gets a little muggy inside, but then yeah, but you know what? Sometime thing, you open up the windows at night and the whole thing cools off, and it's that's know, what I like about the life. North County because sometimes it can be kind of cold in the evening in the South County or Morro Bay, and you guys have really nice evenings, beautiful summer evenings. Yeah, so you no, know, nothing's all good or all bad. No, it's all about how you look at it and choose exactly. to enjoy it. Exactly. Well. Wait a minute. Wait just a minute. There it is. My phone. (laughs) Your lifeline. Some of the stuff I got to look at on my phone here. You know, it's one of my resources for the show. I got got my notes Uh, in the, you know, I draft up my notes on the computer. I got notes in my phone. I collect them all week. Such a millennial. Yeah. Yeah. A millennial. (laughs) I saw you. How very millennial of you. I saw you (laughs) with newsprint on your fingers. (laughs) There was a story I saw just this morning. I was scrolling through the Facebook feed and I saw a story about a kid that sold newspapers for five years. Like started in middle school and went through high school, saved every penny he made selling papers and is Mm -hmm. enough to pay for his college tuition. Cool. So that's cool was like no way mm-hmm. that many people still buy newspaper yeah let alone this like youth of america mm-hmm. earning money to pay for college and saving it oh my gosh what a thought are you kidding right? me i know actually that was my first job as i was a newspaper boy you know it taught a lot of responsibility and uh you could ha- how you could have money and you how know, long did you stuff. have the newspaper job for about two years when i was a kid that's yeah. a good run. Yeah. I know a lot of Maybe kids two, that would have years. it for about two weeks until they mm-hmm. ran out of room in their garage for the newspapers. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the, part, the hard part was going and collecting. You that just got to go. Oh, you had to bang I on the door. You were accounts yeah. receivable too? Yeah. 
And then you had that accountability too, though, because you threw it through the window or you yeah. got it in the sprinklers I again. I never did that, but yeah. Anyway, the dogs. That's what really sucks sometimes is the dogs. Oh, sure. Take your dog in so I can collect from you, please. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably part of the savings. Yeah, that there it is. ferocious dog right uh-huh. there. Well, hey, the uh, the markets had a kind of a wild finish to the week yesterday. Um, we found the jobs report had a pretty good shakeup in the market. Um, well, there was some housing numbers. I saw a good reduction in the chances of the feds um, raising interest rates. Seems like the June uh, chance of raising rates is completely off the table. Yeah, the headline in the newspaper, this is taken from the Washington Post, says that the report killed all hopes for the June rate hike. Pretty crazy. Yeah, and this week we saw the, I mean, the bond yield, the 10-year bond yield was getting up in the 1-8-somethings, and it wasn't being helped that Janet Yellen and a couple of other people from the Fed made some remarks over the last couple weeks, kept saying, hey, you guys, rate hikes are coming, and they're probably coming soon, trying to just sort of pave the way, and... Interestingly enough, yesterday, so a, a reasonably like, I mean, what's the average movement in the bond market a day? It might go from 1.71 to 7.375. Yeah, usually it's minimal. It always depends a little bit on what what's on the economic agenda for the day, but for the most days some stuff can be market moving yeah. but most days it moves that like it's small, you know small yeah, fraction yeah. yeah hundredth of a percent yesterday we moved a tenth of a percent a little bit more from 1.81 down to 1.70 and that was just on the heels of the jobs report um, well and it was it it moved so fast and it's because the report itself was so shocking yeah you know it it when I first, dramatic. so I, I wake up early on the, on that first Friday of the month jobs report day. Um, it's kind of like Christmas morning to some degree where it's like, Oh, I gotta know ADP, um, the huge payroll company, they, they print enough paychecks nationally to have a pretty good handle on what the jobs created are going to be for what they call non-farm payrolls. ADP number was at like addition of 176,000 jobs. That seems like, hey, that's probably better than last month. If that holds true, that's a good reading. Gets us closer to back on track. Last month was what? 130-something? Well, I was going to say like 140. It yeah. was not very good. Um, it seems like 200,000 jobs added is, is the benchmark for a decent report. Well, and so last month, I mean, we joked. I think you weren't here. or Maybe we talked about it after the fact, but... There was a bunch of economists beginning immediately to sort of talk about why why the jobs number was not as bad as it first appeared. Hey, don't freak out, you guys. The, this is actually on the moving average and all these things, this 140,000 number. So now for April, it's okay. It's okay. Don't worry about it. It's nothing to freak out about. Um, so we ride that momentum into this month. So one of the first things we learned about the jobless report um jobless what 
The jobless report? Yeah, the, <laughs> the jobs report is the jobless report today. Um, they made a correction in April. They um, knocked back April by like 40,000 jobs. So April is way worse than it even was explained a way of being. Um, and now we found out in June... Like I said, I woke up in the morning, I grab my phone off my nightstand and I scroll right to my finance page. I start reading the articles and it's 38,000 jobs. Surely it's a typo. Yeah. And 200,000 is the benchmark for a decent report. Well, and only the day before, (laughs) ADP said we were getting 176. I'm thinking I got to wake up early and rush into the office and lock a bunch of loans, right? Uh Because you have a little bit of time. If it's a great report, yeah. like what if you had one of those ones that's 250,000 jobs created? Oh, my God. The feds are going to raise rates for sure now. You had better be ready for that. So I had a few loans that were like right there on the edge. And so I thought, you know, I'll check it early. If it's bad, I'll just race over there in my pajamas and lock some loans. I come back, get ready for work. 100 134,000 jobs. Okay, that would have been fine, whatever. It said 38,000 jobs. I pulled up another article. Is that true? Is there a one missing? Is it really 38,000? It was. The economy added um, 38,000 jobs last month. That's the smallest gain in a month for our labor market since September 2010. It doesn't even seem possible. It's booty. <laughs> That's not good. That's a technical term. Yeah, that's a technical term. <laughs> you can put that in your in your summaries. That's booty. That's a bad month. And heading into the summer right now, um, home buying season, you know, some of the numbers about inflation and PPI and CPI, things have been arguably doing a little bit better. These home numbers, by the way, every time we see another good housing report, um, when I say good, basically what I'm talking about is house price appreciation right away. They say, Oh, and then it has to do with, uh, sustained job growth and wage, uh, increases. And this is why, um, we got two months in a row now that are really not good. The downward revision to April, um, they they knocked off 48,000 jobs off of April. So that would move that one down below 100,000 added as well. Between March and April, it was, it's been revised down 59,000 jobs in those two months. Wow. Um, suggesting that, oh... The unemployment rate fell a little bit, 4.7 in May, its lowest level since 07, because 458,000 Americans gave up the search for work. So this is a little bit evident, right, where we saw a couple of those strong jobs report in the first quarter of this year were a result of... um, the unemployment rate sort of stayed, but the jobs numbers were good. And it was like, Hey, look, there's a higher participation rate right now. We're seeing a real contraction in that participation rate. When 458,000 people are excluded from the metric. Um, and that results in that drop of that, um, unemployment rate again, 
that's like one of those headlines. That's just a sneaky headline. Uh, that's not good news when the unemployment rate goes down because people are not being counted because they're giving up or unsuccessful in looking. Once you've been unemployed for so long, you're no longer counted. Once you hit a certain age, you're no longer counted. It's sort of like that that sneaky trick of you know reducing the divisor so you can grade on a curve or something. Yeah, after two months of subpar job growth and subpar i don't even think does it justice it's no it's, it's booty horrible They're, it's, it's horrible it's job like growth. two months in a row yet we see the unemployment rate fall three tenths of a percent it's not a good number right it's, it's the fact that people have just stopped looking for whatever reason um so just last week you know like i said um fed chair janet yellen said that an interest rate increase would probably be appropriate in the coming months. Now, knowing that June and July, these are the coming months she was really trying to talk about. I mean, she was trying to let us know to get ready. Um, and by the way, the feds meet in June on the 14th and 15th. So we will be getting their guidance then. I mean, this is the jobs report they're taking into that meeting. So with everything else to take into consideration, um, the chance of a July increase has now declined. It was 60% on Thursday, late Thursday. The July chance of a Fed rate hike just fell to 37%. So um, chances are it's not going to happen. Um, and that being said, that first week of July, we're going to get the June reading. So everybody better be hoping that June is looking a whole lot better, else you're going to start seeing some concern um, that, you know, maybe we're not on as strong a footing as we thought economically. And, you know, and I, I, I try hard not to be a, a doom and gloom type of person about this stuff. Um, just try to add up the parts and keep believing that it's a work in progress. Uh, one of the other things that we weren't, we didn't do the show last week because it was, um, Memorial day weekend, um, but one of the things that I had in the notes to bring in was that there was uh, that Friday leading into the weekend, there was another update on GDP for the first quarter. And GDP was expected to come around, um, around 0.7%. It was 0.5% growth in the initial release, and it was actually 0.8% um, of GDP growth for the first quarter. And so... That's the weakest showing in a year. So, I mean, you remember fourth For quarter. GDP. Yeah. So. Yeah. It's the worst since the last first quarter. First quarters for like three, four years running have been pretty bad. Well, this one was going to be better. It was. In Honestly, I think quarter, point eight. Point whatever, eight is better. That is better because we, I remember, what was it, two, three years ago, it was negative. Right. Then it was zero. Then it was like point and 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 one negative of uh, GDP growth. One quarter of negative is enough to start a pretty serious discussion about the recession. I yeah. mean, recession is defined like at its most basic level, um, two consecutive quarters of negative GDP. The global or our our country economy contracting for two quarters. So. Anyways, not a very good reading there. This now we're in the second quarter. The jobs thing seems freaky. Uh, where's the bright spot in the economy? Lately, it, it just looks like it's in housing. And when you really go back and line that up, 
seems like it's in the price appreciation of housing. I was going to say, it's bright if you're a homeowner. Right. It's not bright if you're a home buyer. Right. Um, it's, it's a competitive market, which we'll talk about more, I'm sure, later in the show. One more thing about this employment situation here, I think, is probably the most disappointing of all. And I'm looking past this <laughs> horrible, horrible jobs, job growth number um, is the hourly earnings. You know, those are not picking up steam like we had hoped. This was the year. And I've honestly I've been saying this probably for three or four years. This is the year that I really expected to see meaningful wage growth. Um, it seemed like the unemployment rate getting down to 5% and staying there and holding um, that we were reaching what most economists would, would call full employment. You know, there's it's generally accepted that there's about 3 to 5% of the population that's just unemployed at any given time. So that's considered full employment. And we're there. That, no, that reading is consistent with the, the idea of full employment. We're... It just seemed natural that the next evolution of this recovery was to start for employers to start to get more competitive over the right. people that already had jobs and pay them more. Pay to and, keep them, pay to attract them. Yeah. And that's not happening. It's no. not coming through in these recent job reports. And that's probably the most disappointing thing of all. In May, the private sector added only 25,000 jobs. That's the smallest number that the private sector has added since February of 2010. Uh, manufacturing dropped by 10,000, construction dropped by 15,000 jobs. Again, that construction number takes us, like looking for that that last low in the graph was back in December of 13. Uh, so anyway, I mean, we, we don't have to keep beating this dead horse. The jobs market in the U.S. isn't a lot to be excited about for the month of May. But hey, it's June. So get excited. Be excited. I mean, yeah. Maybe June's going to be way better. <laughs> no? Maybe. Maybe it's, yeah. It, 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 here's to hoping. Until that first Friday in July when we find out what really happened, for now we'll hope that it just gets yeah. a lot better. It's shocking. I, that's really the only word I have to describe it all. It's, it's shockingly bad. Dan, you mentioned <laughs> a second ago that... Um, about home homeowners. Yeah. It's great news for homeowners. Ah, I love it when my home value goes up. Terrible news for <laughs> would-be home buyers. Um, there was an interesting Gallup survey that, um, again, this is like stale info. This is more than a week old because I would have shared this last week, but we weren't here. Um, American renters are almost twice as likely to worry about not being able to pay their housing costs as homeowners. Twice as likely? Yeah. So they went through a couple different income brackets and looked at uh, who's worried about being able to keep the roof over their head. And I guess, it, I guess it makes sense. I mean, it depends where on the spectrum you fly and how much life exper experience you have with home ownership or renting. But um, this said, overall, 33% of Americans are very or moderately worried about paying their rent home loan or other housing costs. You have about a third of the population when surveyed said that they're very worried or moderately worried about being able to, to keep shelter. Um, that's, that's a pretty startling statistic. Um, the renters though, out of the group are the ones, uh, most fretting their finances. Uh, the first one here, they gave an income bracket of, uh, of renters, 
earning an annual wage of $30,000 or less. And in that, I mean, that that's a pretty small wage, I suppose. I mean, that's an entry-level job. Pretty soon, that's a uh, minimum wage job, by the way. 15 bucks an hour is right about where you land when you're making $30,000 a year. 63% of those making an annual wage of that 30000 or less are very worried about paying their accommodation um, compared to 47% of homeowners at the same level. Again, it's kind of surprised me that you could even own a home. It must be, you know, they must have, this Gallup poll must have reached outside of California. But in the fine print here of this article, you find out that renters worry more about that ability to pay their rent um, than homeowners at all income levels, even in the upper income brackets. 29% of those taking home $75,000 a year or more are concerned about paying their rent, whereas only 15% of homeowners are concerned about paying rent. So it's about half. Um, so couple that, those stats, where you find out a third of the American people are freaked out about being able to pay rent at all, and then go down and break it by income level, it's the renters that are feeling the most pinch lately. Um, and you see that in the backdrop of these ever-increasing property values, most everywhere you look. I've got a couple of interesting numbers for you. Countywide here in San Luis Obispo, the vacancy rate on rentals currently is about 1.7%. A healthy vacancy rate is about 5%. So very little vacancy, which is leading to higher rental prices. Of course. Here's the definition of affordable housing. It's when a family or a household spends no more than 30% of their, um, of their income on housing, 30%. So we look at the average two-bedroom apartment in San Luis Obispo County costs you over 1300 bucks a month. If that's representing just 30% of your total income, you're having to make you know, roughly four grand a month, $48,000 a month, just to afford a two-bedroom apartment. 48,000 a year. Or 48,000 a year, sorry. Yeah. Um, to afford a two-bedroom apartment. Which, and I know what 48 grand a year is. That's 25 bucks an hour. Right, yeah, 25, 19. I know that because <laughs> that was um, that was my first like good-paying job where I wasn't swinging a hammer. When I first started, the first mortgage company I worked for, that was my... That was my uh, big raise was to 48 grand a year. And maybe my math's a little off. This article says that at $25.19 per hour, that's what it takes for a slow resident to have an affordable two-bedroom apartment, according to that 30% metric. Um, that translates into $52,400 per year, which makes San Luis Obispo County the 17th most expensive county in California. So somewhere in the middle of California, actually, but um, I bet when you look at it nationally, it's, yeah, it's up just, there. It's just above, because I think we have 50 counties, don't we? Uh, like 58, something yeah. like that. I was going to say 53. <laughs> I'll don't go. I, you know, I'll, I'll find out. Dan, you when you um, said vacancy factor, I wondered if there were some listeners that were unsure as what a vacancy factor is <laughs> and, um, and why a vacancy factor matters. Um, 
by the way, this lack of vacancy factor, I think, is at the heart of why the city wanted to do their rental inspection ordinance to begin with. It, it Those things go hand in hand. Um, when I was going to school at Cal Poly, as a, you know, I was a city and regional manning, city and regional planning major. And we talked a lot about those things because in your city or your area, your vacancy factor is a pretty big deal. It's a representation of kind of the health of what you could even expect out of your local economy where, you know, it, within those rental homes, do people have the ability to move within the community, but also move into the community. You know, if your needs change and you you start out in a studio and then you want to get a one bedroom and then you want to get a two bedroom and eventually you're going to move over into a home or, or whatever, it, it's a really, I mean, not only does it have a lot of upward pressure on rates, but it's a really negative thing for your local economy where people can't make those changes within you know it's like in san Louis, if you go from a point where you know you have a one-bedroom house and now you need a two-bedroom house or a three-bedroom house you almost have to give some consideration to leaving the area it's that hard it really is that hard um, in fact one of our employees who's currently renting um, he's having a heck of a time finding a rental at all in the north county the demand is unreasonable there's so many people and from what we hear it's back to that um, you know, I say back to it, it's probably never changed. I want to say back to it because what it was like when I was a renter and in college and stuff where you you know you're competing with dozens of people for the same house. So you don't get to negotiate how big the deposit is or whether or not the landlord is going to provide a refrigerator. You don't get to negotiate whether, you know, for example, in a normal housing economy where in a rental economy where you'd go and you'd say, well, you know what, what's today? June 4th. So, you know, you're the would be landlord and I'm the would be tenant. I need to give a 30 day notice at, at the spot I'm in now. Um, well, you want it and you're going to get it. So I'm all, now I'm all of a sudden pinched. You want two months worth of rent and for security deposit. Plus you want me to play my first month's rent and prorated this. And I, all of a sudden you're asking me to write a check for thousands of dollars. You're just able to name your terms because if I won't do it, the guy behind me in line will. And it makes it really, really challenging for people. Um, and by the way, I mean, with, with our employee that's going through this right now, it makes it hard to focus when you're at work. So these things, I mean, it, it begins to consume you as you're struggling with just having that most basic need met. And it's a, it's crisis level in our county. Um, and again, this is not limited just to the rental market. This is the same case in the housing market if you're going to buy. Part of it is that there's just such a demand, I think, from not building homes for so long. Uh, but we just, we're not keeping up. And it, it's what is pushing these prices up across the board. It's it's not a healthy thing. Um, hopefully we'll see some more help in that way, some way. I mean, obviously in slow, we're not going to build enough houses to create a 5% vacancy factor as desired in, in rental or sales. Um, that's just not going to happen, but maybe somewhere else in the county. 58 counties in California. That's what I said. 
Yeah, my dad said, actually, California has the distinction, too, of having the largest county, San Bernardino County, mm. in terms of square miles, and the largest county in terms of population, Los Angeles County. Interesting. And then, uh, the last, according to this, the last county formed in California was Imperial County in 1907. Huh. So it has that distinction, too. Awesome. Kind of interesting. There you go. Thanks, Gotta Jim. love Wikipedia. <laughs> right. all right this seems like a good good spot to take a break break point refresh the coffee what do you say water the dog yeah you gotta do that gotta water the dog. i think you gotta get your questions ready or your comments call in and share something with us so we don't just keep rambling about the things we want to talk about let's talk about the things you want to talk about Five four three eight eight three zero five four three eight eight three zero. If you'd like to ask a question or share a comment, I also this week yet again the number one biggest complaint about our show: we don't give out our company phone number enough. So, if you like what you're hearing, if you're interested in doing a mortgage, if you're interested in getting pre-qualified to buy a home, we're Central Coast Lending. That's who we're representing is our company, Central Coast Lending. Offices all around the county. You can call us during the week at 543-LOAN. It's 543-5626. But right now we're here in the radio show, the radio studio, and we're taking your calls on the air at 543-8830. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back with more Mortgage Matters. Don't go anywhere. Keep it locked to Mortgage Matters on KVEC News Talk 920. To ask a question, call 543-8830 or 800-549-5832. We'll be back in just a few minutes. Through seven presidential administrations, bull and bear markets, and unprecedented change, Blakesley and Blakesley has been here helping residents of the Central Coast reach their financial goals. So if you need retirement advice beyond Social Security, want to roll over an old 401k, or simply seek guidance through an important financial decision, visit Blakesley and Blakesley in San Luis Obispo, Paso Robles, and Santa Maria. Blakesley and Blakesley, for the service you deserve and the advice you trust. Member FINRA and SIPC. This is Jason Grody with Central Coast Lending. Our loans are not trucked in from some big bank. They're raised right here on the Central Coast. No hormones, no GMOs, no antibiotics. Call today and get your gluten-free mortgage from a caring lender that knows you only accept the best for your family. Just call Central Coast Lending. Refinance Just call 543 Central Coast Lending. Central Coast Lending is an equal housing opportunity real estate broker. California Bureau of Real Estate number 018-39608. NMLS number 328-358. For those of us who live here on the Central Coast, we know this is a unique place to have a home. And for over 30 years, Patterson Realty has been a vital part of San Luis Obispo County. Patterson professionals have led the way in real estate by adapting to new market conditions to make sales happen. What they offer is the quality of their people. Agents working just for you. Get the experts at Patterson Realty on your side. Experience the Patterson difference. Call 544-8662 or online at pattersonrealty.com. You're tuned in to Mortgage Matters, which airs every Saturday from 9 a.m. to 11 a.m. Your hosts, Dan and Jason from Central Coast Lending, want you to join the conversation by calling 800-549-5832. Now, back to the show. It's a big job just getting by with nine kids and a wife. But I've been working, man, dang near all my life, and I'll keep on working. Long as my two hands are fit to use. All right, everybody, welcome back. 
Jim's so timely with the song choices, talking about them working mans. Wait, plus you kind of chastised me a couple of months, about a month ago, for not playing Merle Haggard after his passing. So we got I mean, some Merle in here too, killing two birds with one stone. Can't go wrong with Merle. No. I'm sure you guys saw the headlines already that Muhammad Ali passed away yesterday. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah, Muhammad passed uh, last night, this morning. Wow. Yeah. Seventy-four. Yeah. Hey, we got a phone call. We got Bob calling from Rio Grande. So asking you shall receive. Bob, welcome to the show. Thanks for calling. Hey guys, love the show. Thanks a lot. Thanks. Um, yeah, my question was, I, I, I hear the demand for um, homes in the area is very high, but do you guys take into account the fact that Diablo Canyon will be closing in just a few years and we'll be losing over a thousand, you know, six-figure incomes in the area? I mean, what what impact do you think that'll have on the local housing market? Oh. Man, we could talk about this for days here. Um, we do a lot of loans for Diablo employees, and that's yeah. a that's a good employer out there. I, I recently had the opportunity to sit through a presentation too about um, a few different parties that were talking about Diablo and the potentiality of it closing. Um, it sounded to me like the the sentiment was get ready for it. It's closing. Yet there's like these, we're going to fight and try to get the licenses renewed. But yeah, it, it's a frightening thing to think about as a whole. Um, I mean, I, I don't know that I thought enough about just what it means to the housing economy as much as I thought um, what it means to our county as a whole. I mean, Diablo is the single largest, I should say PG&E, the single largest single taxpayer for property taxes in our county. They pay like $28 million a year or something. Then in addition to it, they they provide their own water, police, and fire. So that's a pretty big drop that they pay to then also be utilizing less demand on the county than what they have so you gotta you gotta wonder what happens as a whole but yeah it's it's gonna be i mean if 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 it should go offline um it sounds like there's gonna be big recourse for probably years in a row um one thing i found interesting though too is like there was some discussion that possibly um they could use the as a terms of getting water into the area yeah. I don't know if that would cause any construction jobs or whatever. I don't think so. I mean, not not nearly as much. Do you guys have any idea how to quantify that in terms of home values? Say a thousand six-figure incomes disappearing from the area? No. I mean, I, I think in terms of what it will do to real estate value or create vacancy or something, it's, it's hard for me to imagine that... Um, it's going to have a, a, probably even a measurable effect on the actual housing market. I mean, and I feel almost a little insensitive saying that because I realize that what the shakeup it is of the family. And I mean, right now, just talking about this, I'm thinking of literally dozens and dozens and dozens of loans we've done for PG&E employees um, that own homes here in town and um, and they're great incomes. I mean, you're right. Those six-figure incomes, that's true. They're great incomes, and they uh, it would be sorely missed. But I, I can't imagine that losing those 1,000 jobs, is, I mean, is it going to cause 500 people to sell their homes overnight at a hit? 
I doubt it. I mean, it, it it's something that I think most people believe is is coming anyway, and um, you know, and maybe the years that it takes them to phase offline. That, and that was one of the the discussions that that I was a part of was if you just let go of this notion that you're going to be able to keep this power plant open and try to figure out a more um, controlled way of phasing it out and the way that you, you know, kind of let the jobs go. And um, there's a good case study in San Onofre when they shut down San Onofre about how rapidly it happened. And then the cleanup crews that they bought in to kind of shut the reactors down weren't, it wasn't even that the employees losing their jobs got first right of refusal. It was that they, like those people were told basically with less than a, a week week's notice. I mean, even a week before San Onofre shut down, they were being told that the plant was going to be, they were going to figure out how to keep it open and save it. And then once they actually axed it, they had um, the skeleton crews that came in weren't even the employees. And so there's a, there's a group in town here that's, that's wanting to encourage um, everyone to just sort of embrace the fact that it's highly likely that this plant is going to close and try to put more emphasis on a wind down that wouldn't result in the news coming out on a Monday and then on a Tuesday, everybody losing their job. And then on a Wednesday, a thousand homes getting listed in Slow County. Um, so I don't know. It seems like a really, a really complex issue. And, um, Gosh, I'd... But what, in the county, there's something like 100,000 housing units to house our, you know, quarter million population. So a thousand, a thousand jobs being lost. I, I don't know that it would have a, a measurable, measurable impact, like you said, Jason. I, I was asked a similar question not too long ago about, you know, what if a company like MindBody or one of those other... Um, companies that's a big employer in the area what if they sold or shut down or whatever and all those jobs left the area would it have a big impact on housing and I think the demand right now is so high and it's not just our area it's all over the state and really all over the country I, I just I don't think a thousand people is enough to really have a huge impact on the yeah. on the housing situation that we're in now we're gonna get going on a big on a big nuke discussion thanks bob <laughs> thanks bob we do appreciate the call in and the and the question yeah and you know what uh, it's probably worth having a discussion a bit further about that too perhaps there's somebody got it. um but imagine though what if what if like San Onofre, yeah. there's not a, an appropriate notice. I mean, from what I understand, the permits for renewal for Reactor 1 and Reactor 2 were filed in like 2009. They were placed on hold in 2011 or 12 or something because of the seismic studies. And they're set to expire, I think, in 2022, 2023, somewhere right in there. So one could argue there's a pretty good leading time period here where you should be prepared that this thing is probably not going to get renewed. I mean, it's obviously a very contentious issue, but if you're actually going forward and attempting to um, try to keep it online, then what happens if it at the last minute the rug's pulled out from under you? 
We have another caller here. We have Bill calling from Templeton. Bill, welcome to the show. Thank you. Enjoy the show. Uh, you know, going back to uh, the topic that you had about uh, unaffordable housing here in the county, I think one of the things you see is when homes are built, we are we are not building starter homes. We are building large homes, three, four, five thousand square feet, and then look in Paso, the uh, home. Uh, project that was just approved is senior homes. So people that are coming into the job market here are really in a tough situation because there is a lack of homes that are, say, 12, 13, 1400 square feet. And then there seems to be a a real drive toward uh, people like myself, senior citizens, to get them in here. So I I think uh, part of the problem is the way we, the lack of zoning and the lack of motivation for builders to build uh, starter homes, you know, they get more money per square foot when they build a a big, luxurious home. So something has to be done on a Along that line. You're right. One of the I was talking with a group this last week about that same kind of thing about the homes that are being built. And another thing that comes to mind too is that a lot of these new homes that are being built are like the they're high density, right? So you put a a two thousand square foot house on a thirty five hundred square foot lot or something, right? Really trying to smack them in there. And they're two story homes too, which isn't good for the aging population. Perhaps that's why that new North County development's trying to target towards some Something that's you know deed restricted for seniors maybe that's why um yeah the but again i i do i think you're right there's there's not enough construction in general there also doesn't seem to be enough of the right kind of construction if there's anything to say about it that could be encouraging i'll tell you um i'm on a committee with the san luis obispo chamber of commerce the economic development committee we frequently have joint meetings with the affordable housing committee and these things are things that are talked about every single meeting um, and constantly looking at trying to figure out how to create incentives for workforce housing that have smaller square footage that are more affordable by design Um, but you know one of the things that that continually comes up is that one of the misnomers about affordable housing is that it, that's almost a marketing term. And what we know about the state of housing here locally, unless the city is forcing it to be designated affordable housing and sold as such, it still fetches market value. And that's competing with the rest of the housing market that has a limited supply. And so we see ever increasing price per square foot. And we don't actually see that impact of um, the actual affordable housing. And look at the one in slow here. There was an opportunity to do a great thing where those brownstones are going in. And now they've built six or eight, you know, $2 million houses right there that are, um, you know, again, they're nice and packed in two-story homes. But that's not, those aren't providing jobs. We don't, our workers aren't here to buy the $2 million brownstone home in slow. There's a real, there's a segment of the housing market that's completely missing on the coast and in San Luis and in South County, really, for the the price point that's 500000 in less and then in the north county really it's hard to find anything under 400 um it's pretty challenging and when someone is looking for that price point it's extremely competitive there's a gentleman that we've been working with for 18 months finally after 18 months of making offers got an accepted offer on a property in napomo a single family home 
um, that was right around that 425. I think 425 was the price he ended up getting it at. And it was a highly competitive ordeal for him over 18 months trying to find a, a home. Yep. And that's what it's like for everyone in that entry-level market trying to find homes around here. It's highly competitive. There's not a lot of supply there. And I, I think it has a lot to do with where the builders are able to make money building homes. And it's it, it doesn't appear to be in that lower end of the market. That's right. Hey, well, I hope we can get a handle on that. Thanks, guys. Appreciate yeah, it. Thanks for the call, Bill. We've got another caller waiting patiently. Jim calling Maybe. from Atascadero. Is that a bad sign, Jim? Sounds like a hang-up. Yeah. Well, we lost Jim from Atascadero. Yeah, something well, happened Well, Jim, there. if you're listening and you still want to call back, <laughs> yeah. call back. Yeah, we'll um, get Jim right on here. That, um, and again, I, I don't want to have a huge discussion about the PG&E plant out there, but one of the interesting things is that um, California Assemblyman, I believe, Monell... Is that his name? I would have to look. I'm not familiar enough with all the names and titles, but there's a proposed bill right now um, that does a economic study on the impact of the closure of Diablo. And the bill itself is being opposed by several parties because um, – if you study just the economic impact, they worry that that document might then be used as grounds to argue that you keep it open, running through the the health and safety concerns or the environmental concerns, the seismic concerns, that you turn a blind eye to that as you focus the report only on the economic impact. But the point of the economic impact is attempting, so they're they're commissioning a report to be done here, and I, it's supposed to be done, you know, in the proposal in the next 18 months or so, that goes through and makes an attempt to outline that. What happens with the absence of those incomes, the absence of those jobs? What happens to the local economy, the tax implications, the, you know, and... I, I'm not going to take a position, at least not here on the radio, about whether or not I think that PG&E should be open. But I can tell you um, they've been pretty philanthropic. There's a lot of donations that PG&E does throughout the county. They've been um, obviously a good jobs provider. Um, it's It's been a, a big component of uh, you know this local economy here. But the flip side of the coin is there are other people saying, hey, there's no more of these things running on the West Coast. So if you're going to suggest that your economy depends on it, let's go talk about all the other West Coast economies that don't depend on it. Their housing is fine or the same or similar. Uh, the jobs market, the tax revenue, the, all these things are all working without having the big nuke plant in the backyard there. So, um, like I said, it's obviously a very contentious thing. And um, there will definitely be some impacts financially to our area if if the plant should prove to close. Um, well, and so. like I was trying to say, too, and I, I didn't really get to hear the response because I was answering phones, but um, well, there, was the, uh, there was the, the thought, yeah, listen I can listen it. back, yeah, I have to, I have to produce <laughs> it afterwards, actually, um, but um, there is, was also the thought, too, that we could use it for 
you know, desal and bring in water in, and that would provide some other jobs and maybe even some construction short-term jobs to get the pipelines put in and all that. Sure. So that could be that it might help us somehow if it's safe to do that. Right. Well, we're fortunate right now to be living in this area in this time where communication is so, so easy with outside areas that, you know, you can have a, a job here and work remotely or have a, have a, a, a company like a mind body or a, whoever that's growing and, and servicing worldwide. I mean, they're, they have a huge reach and they're doing it from here in San Luis Obispo. And it's because of the, the time we're living in. So I think, you know, maybe even just 10 years ago, you weren't seeing that kind of employer here in San Luis Obispo County. And it was even harder to, to stay and have a life here as a young, um, worker, you know, who wanted to buy a home and raise a family, that, that was a reality, but right. now it is a reality for people. And even if Diablo were to shut down, I'm optimistic that other employers like that will be able to make their home in San Luis Obispo. And I know the chamber does a lot of work to try to, you know, attract those types of businesses. And... Well, look, I mean, Amazon opened up right here in slow sure, for exactly. that very reason. It's a highly desirable place where yes, it's expensive, but their employees make a good wage and they can afford to buy here. And compared to other markets where some of their headquarters are, it is actually a little bit affordable. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, you're right. There's, there's, there are a lot of um, employment opportunities like that. It's not to say it's not competitive. It totally is. You better be bringing your A game. Um, so all the youngsters listening, that's why we want you to show up at school and study, work hard. Um get yourself in your best position to compete, um, have that good credit, you know, all those things that it takes to, to be the person they pick out of the, the droves there. But that's why those are higher income jobs too. That's, that's how you get to live in paradise, especially if you get to survive and thrive here in the County as you're going through your twenties. That's, I don't think it's the norm, you know? I, yesterday I was talking to a, a would-be client that listens to the radio show, and he was talking about how his kids had to move away, um, and mainly just because of employment. It was just tough to get a, a good job here, unless you want to work at a restaurant, work at a bar. Um, there's there's certainly other jobs, but they're difficult to get. It's really competitive, um, but it's part of it. I mean, that we know that when we live here. Oh man! Now what do we do with this five minutes? Maybe I, uh, maybe that Jim from Atascadero <laughs> should call back. Whatever prompted you to call Jim, just call us back. Our our Jim running the boards here. Um, he wanted to get you on. We just we took too long, I guess. Right. Here I have an interesting okay. statistic here, which is right in line with what we're talking about about the the demand for housing in California from 2003 to 2014. California cities and counties granted permits to just 45% of the housing units needed to meet demand. So for basically an entire decade, for a full 10, 11 years, we only built half of the amount of homes we needed to keep up with population growth. Right. So when we talk about a thousand jobs potentially being displaced in the next 10 years or six years, make up for them in construction. I mean, no, I'm just thinking that where will we get the water, Dan? There's been enough demand built up since 2003 that they'll a thousand 
job. I mean, and I'm not even convinced that all, I mean, that's assuming all 1,000 of those people decide to pack up and leave the area. That's certainly not going to happen. I, I wanted, <laughs> I mean, one of the things that's interesting about that, by the way, in terms of Diablo and the number of those high paying jobs. One of the things that's different about Diablo than Mind Body, I'm probably going to put my foot in, in my mouth here too, but the longevity of Diablo. It's been open a long time. And what, 40 years? Something like that? How long has Mind Body been open? Been on my radar for like five, 10 years. So some of those people probably even have their houses paid off. Oh, yeah. Um, or they, you know, I, I don't know, maybe they get severance packages where they can or where they don't have to sell right away or something. I don't know what, how it, it it's all going to be structured if and when it closes. Um, everything I saw though, and everything I read and the, the meetings that I've sat through suggest that it's going to close. And the best thing that you could do is, you know, of course it's upsetting to everybody that works there, has friends, family, loved ones that work there, um, or whatever. Everybody that that sees it in somewhat of a negative light, the closure, um, it, it seems that it's imminent and you got to start planning for it. But don't you even remember a few years ago, we had a number of guys, younger guys who worked out at Diablo, played on our softball team, and they were talking about this. And even the message that but I got so, from them was, you know, even if it does close, there's going to be a, a whole wind down process, which they yeah. anticipated that they would be. Part but one of. of the interesting things, this kind of ties into what you were asking, too, about the water situation, Jim, with Diablo in the desal plant out there. Mm -hmm. um, the lease that they have for the inlet and discharge pumps are about three miles offshore. Mm -hmm. And it, it's a lease that that that's where those intakes and and um exhaust i guess you would call it of the water mm -hmm. are three miles offshore. that lease is up this year mm. and in order to get that lease renewed to be able to run the um there's some things that have to happen yeah. and and it sounded to me it was almost my impression that it was a bit of a surprise that that lease was coming due and needed a bunch of different agencies to you know weigh in and agree on allowing it to be renewed um, temporarily or whatever, if at all. And that that's that's another component to it too. So not only is the operational license for Reactor One and Reactor Two up for renewal in the early 2020s, but um, there's this issue of of that water intake and discharge lease out there anyway. So. By the it, way, it went online in 1985. Issue. Went online 85. in 85. Yeah, 35 years. All right, we got the mandatory break here. We'll be right back with more Mortgage Matters. Welcome back. You're listening to Mortgage Matters with hosts Dan and Jason from Central Coast Lending. If you want to join the conversation, call the show at 543-8830 or 800-549-5832. Now... Here's Dan and Jason. Welcome back. 
Who feels like we've just been talking about heavy stuff today? It's good stuff. It's been a good show. Housing yeah. crisis, Diablo, unaffordable rents, unaffordable home prices, crappy job creation, booty, as we called it. <laughs> Let's talk about something a little more lighthearted. Let's do it. What do you got? No, it's not lighthearted. I want to talk about credit for a little while. There's a shift right now in um, credit scores and credit scoring models. And um, I think at first I kind of wanted to roll my eyes at it because it was another, is that really what we want to focus our energy on? But um, some of this stuff's starting to get a little bit of traction right now. So I thought it'd be worth talking about. Um, so credit score. What goes into your credit score? Um, well, we know at a basic level right now that your credit has to do with how long have you had credit and how do you do with it? You know, if you have credit cards, you, you charge them up and you pay them off. Um, by the way, we could do we could do like several shows in a row about credit, but I wanted to just kind of give a flyby to some people and tell you a couple anecdotal stories, and then I'll, I want to follow up with telling you like kind of what's new in credit right now. Uh, but but first of all, um, when you use a credit card for your what well, you're trying to get great credit, okay, we all want good credit, right? I don't think anybody ever out there wants bad credit. But some people say, well, I use my credit card every month and I pay it in full every month and that should give me outstanding credit. So I had a gal come in first time home buyer. By the way, this, this gal knocked my socks off. She was young and, um, young and single had a great job, had already saved what I'd consider a fortune for somebody that's 29 years old. She saved a hundred thousand bucks putting a hundred grand down towards her first home purchase had one of those good jobs and slow. Uh, wow. It was, it was a killer, uh, the whole package in terms of somebody that just planned it out, walked out the steps and did it right. Um, I ran her credit and she had like a 660 credit score and, and literally started crying. She had worked so hard for so long to do all these things. And that credit score was killing her. I looked at her credit and she had, she had really one account, one credit account that she used, um, was an American express card and she put her stuff on it every month and then she paid it off and full because she thought that that was what um was good for her that was a that's how you should use a credit card and i, I oh i'm so sorry to have to tell you this i wish that you had learned this earlier in life but that's not the way to use a credit card and here's why american express sent this data to the credit bureaus on the first what's the balance what's the payment is it late she didn't get her bill until the 10th. So this card that had a $3,500 available credit, every time they reported it on the first, it had like a $2,500 a month balance on it. She ran every bill she had through it. So it was at like 70% utilization, which sounds like somebody that's maxed out, right? We have no idea that she pays it off in full every month. It shows the minimum payment and the current balance as related to the available credit. Now, if she got her bill on the first and paid it in full on the first and then American Express reported on the second, it would always have a zero balance, zero payment. That would be outstanding for your credit. So here's the question for people that are using credit cards every month like that, thinking you're building your credit. 
Um, when does your credit company report to the credit bureaus and when do you pay your bill? Yeah, we all know when we pay our bill. We have no idea when these companies report to the bureaus and they won't usually tell us. So the bigger picture here is that that's not how credit works. Um, because we just see the current balance and the current payment, if you're looking for outstanding credit, what we want to see is that you used the card. Um, one of the other figures that shows on a credit report is how close to the available credit did you ever get? In other words, you have a you have a Capital One card that has a thirty thousand dollar available credit, and the most you've ever put on it is seven hundred and fifty two bucks. That's not that impressive to me. I'm glad you charged seven fifty two and pulled it off. You paid it down to zero. That's pretty cool. Um, if I looked at that, if I looked at your credit report and that thirty thousand dollar card at one point was at twenty eight grand, and now it's at zero, whoa! This person clearly has an ability to manage some pretty big bills and has done a good job at it. That builds a credit profile. So if you're tracking what I'm saying, what you want to do if you're looking for great credit, especially, this is especially true if you're trying to reestablish credit, like you had a short sale or a foreclosure or a bankruptcy or even just mortgage lates or things like that during the recession, and now you're trying to figure out how to get great credit again, listen up. This is how you do it. Take your credit card that you, you know, whatever the available credit is on it, um, make a purchase on there that gets you pretty close to uh, that limit. You know, if it's a $5,000 card, it might be hard for you to figure out how to spend four grand on your credit card at some point, but I don't know, maybe you need to buy new appliances or something and you're going to pay cash. And instead of paying cash just one time, you run it through your card and then you pay the cash to the card just to get that, show that balance, get close to what it's available is. And then you pay the card off to zero. That's ideal. There's no benefit to you using your credit card every month and paying it off in full because, you know, I put all my gas on it and then I pay it off. That's how I get great credit. No, it's not. That's not helping you. Don't do that. The only reason that you use your credit cards like that on that monthly while I use it and then I pay it off in full is because you're getting rewards. If you're mm. getting airline miles or rebates, um, like Shell does that like 1% or 2% rebate program if you use that card or whatever, um, rebates and rewards are different. If you're not using, if your card that you're using doesn't have rebates or rewards, you're not doing yourself any favor at all by running it through the credit. In fact, it's probably negatively affecting you. So going back to that gal I was telling you about the home buyer that had a 660 credit score, her American Express card was so full. And so she was like, man, I, I'm used to having a credit score that's in the 700s. Um, yeah, well, what you need to do is pay that card off and then stop doing that. She wasn't getting any rewards from the American Express. So she paid it off. A month later, when the credit report cycled again, her credit score was 780. So, um, and in that case, it was very extreme because she really only had one credit. I was just about to ask you, this, this sounds like a case of lack of credit depth. And yeah, so she had a couple student loans. She had a car loan that was manageable, but that's installment debt. So difference between revolving debt and installment debt. Installment debt is over a term. 
right? 10 years, five years, three years, whatever it is, you'll make this regular payment. And at the end of this thing, it's over. It hits zero and you're done. That's like your car loan, your student loan, your timeshare, these kind of things. Credit card is called revolving debt because you can use it, pay it down, pay it off, use it again. It's revolving. It goes up and down, up and down. Your credit score is most in, impacted on revolving debt where any account is over certain thresholds of balance. So in other words, if you owe 50% or more of the available credit in any one snapshot, that's going to have a negative effect on your credit. Even if you pay it in full every month, that's the reality of it, but also in aggregate. So let's say you have seven credit cards that are available to you, but you really only use one and you got a 0% balance offer on it. So it's at a hundred percent, but it's your big card, right? Because that you have 0% credit and you did this balance transfer. Um, those other six credit cards you have are like the $500,000 balance ones. If your credit card available credit in aggregate is utilized more than 50%, that's the double whammy to it. So it's really important. And most credit reports, by the way, summarize this for you. It tells you the percentages of available versus um, utilization. But you want to make sure that in your aggregate revolving accounts, that you're below, you know, ideally below a 10% usage at all times. And then on individual credit cards, um, ideally you want to be below 10% usage at all times. So again, here's another tip for somebody else. Maybe the guy that has the $30,000 Capital One card and um, puts two to three thousand dollars a month on it and pays it off for rewards that's why you want that huge credit line now i'm only ever using 10 percent of it so when you come looking on me oh you know, yeah this guy owes three grand on his visa card but it's three grand against thirty thousand available he's financially healthy here's your great credit score when you owe three out of three available you're like i mean red flags are in your credit report and that's demonstrated with a 660 credit score you're not late yet, but you look maxed out or like you could, you're a root canal away from going bankrupt. Those are, so that part of credit, right? I mean, that's just part of it. So um, I won't, I won't talk more about credit. That's my tip for the day. And, and I guess I'll go on to say that if you want credit help like that, if you're trying to reestablish credit, trying to get on path to, you know, basically buy a home. Um, these are kind of things that we'll help you out with. This is part of the pre-approval process. These are the things we look at when we get under the hood. Um, but so years back started this criticism that credit's not, um, the current credit reporting standards are no good because basically if you don't borrow, then you don't get credit. And some people don't want to borrow. Like, you're not a big borrower. No. I know. I mean, I've known you for a long time. You don't do car loans. You don't have credit card balances that you carry. Um, you're I, like, in fact, I do exactly what you just described. I have a card that I charge up and pay off every month. Yeah. And it, it, it's for rewards or otherwise, but it's the... It's for ease of use, really. Sure. <laughs> um, point being, though, if you're debt adverse... Do you deserve a bad credit score? No, but oddly enough, we see it all the time. And I think it's a total flaw in the system. I've seen people who are 50, 60, 70 years old, even who are, they've just, they grew up in a time where you, you spent within your means and that meant you spent what you had, not what was on this plastic card. And I've sitting here, I'm like, wow, I'm impressed 
that you have lived 60 years in your life and you have really no credit whatsoever to speak Here's of. your mortgage That's denial. That's impressive. Here's yeah. your mortgage denial. But it turns out you don't have a credit score, so we can't even get you approved. So here's the deal. And there's some recent rules, some laws that are affecting this. We're going to see them go into effect later this year and next year um, about things that are going to be starting to be rated in credit that are, um, cause you could argue, no, I don't, I don't go down this road a lot, but I'm going to say the credit system is influenced by the banks that want you to borrow money and get into credit card debt or student loans or auto debt or whatever to build your credit score. Cause if you don't participate in that, then we'll screw you later. You're not going to get to buy a house later, or you're not going to get to get that 0% financing on something because you don't have a history of it or something like that. Right? So one could, argue that the banks have built this process around you being indebted to them to get the right to be able to buy a home or to do anything that's credit dependent. Because what are the things that aren't included? Your cell phone bill, you pay that every month, but it only reports on your credit if it goes in collections. Good for you for paying it on time for 15 years. We don't care. Same for all of your household utilities. How about your household utilities? How about your rent? So what we're moving towards in this credit industry is things like rent being included and reporting on credit um, so that those people that pay rent for 15 years, they sh if you paid your rent for 15 years and you've never been late, I want to know that when I evaluate for a mortgage, not that you did good with your $500 Best Buy card for seven years or whatever it was, right? So it's just, a, I think, a positive thing shifting more into some logic. Um, and here's an interesting one too is um, – HOA dues are going to be roped into the credit reporting agencies now, which is an interesting one for all the people, uh, you know, and I realize this is a small set of the population, but if you belong to a condo uh, homeowners association, especially if you're on the board or you manage the condo association, you realize how many people pay those things late. They have a delinquency problem because there's no teeth to it. They don't report to your credit. They can't really charge you a late fee. It's not well-defined. So it's like you pay on the honor system. Yeah, they'll keep track of what you fall behind on. But when was the last time you heard about an, a condo HOA being able to foreclose on a, a homeowner because their delinquency in their HOA dues? It doesn't happen. That's a tough sell in the courts. But... I mean, it is possible. There's remedy for you. If you don't pay your HOA fees for years in a row, your condo um, homeowners association could foreclose on you, uh, force that sale so they can get their proceeds back and have a new owner in the project that pays their bills. Um, so it would probably bring up people paying more on time. But, um, but then at the same time, there's this other part that if you're paying your HOA dues, that's something that should be reporting on your credit. Um, so it's a, it's kind of a cool thing. I think all the, all those yeah. monthly obligations, I, I feel like utilities should, why not? I mean, think about the, the person who's spending two grand a month on either rent or mortgage, paying another 500 bucks a month on utilities, cell phone, cable, internet, all that stuff. And well, all the while, not racking up a bunch of credit card debt to do it. You know that's what's interesting? That's a great person I'd love to loan money to. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> right. And it's somebody that deserves a credit score that they can then assimilate into the system as opposed to being cast out as like, well, you're you're essentially a ghost, so I won't loan to you. Yeah. Um, uh, it's it's just a really interesting thing. HOA thing, so I I would think most people keep up with those. 
Maybe I'm wrong. Well, but anyway, because it's mutually beneficial because if you have an HOA, usually they have something to do with the upkeep of the property, things like totally. that. And if you do want to sell it at some point in time, well, and there's they're, actually they're going to want to have that, you know, we have underwriting cap. guidelines, by the way, too, that if in any HOA greater than 15% of the total unit holders yeah. are more than 30 days past due on their dues, yeah. that the project is ineligible for financing. Yeah. So, and think about that for a minute. That's a funny, kind of a funny thing. In a hundred unit condo complex, mm -hmm. that means 15 units would be, if 15% of those hundred units are delinquent on their HOA dues, mm -hmm. we can't loan to you. Sorry. I mean, those are, and those are questions we ask, but think about this on a 10 unit complex. Yeah. What if two people are past due? That's 20% delinquency. Now, yeah. nobody in that project can get a conventional loan because of that delinquency. So it's one of those things where yeah. um, I do think most people pay. It. And you're right, Jim. There's And there's good reason to. Um, yeah. HOAs also are, are required to have reserve accounts mm -hmm. so that... You know, they can still afford to pay the trash man to come empty out the dumpster, even though, you know, mm -hmm. dude from unit three hasn't paid his HOA due in a month. Um, yeah. But here's an interesting wrinkle, though, Dan. When we qualify people for a home loan, it's the debt of the house with taxes and insurance, HOA dues, if there is one, flood insurance, whatever, all that stuff gets part of your debt to income ratio, right? We divide those expenses by your income and that's how we know what your debt to income ratio is. That's called the front end ratio. The back end ratio is the rest of the things that appear on your credit report. All your consumer debt. <laughs> yeah, your car, your student loan, your timeshare, um, your sleep number bed card for 5,000 bucks, all these things. I think I know where you're going with this. What if happens if you now have to count there, all those? Like my utilities are in yeah, there? Yeah, then all of a sudden your debt ratio is 70% and you don't qualify if all those show up. We would have a lot less people qualifying. But so now you're going, well, wait a minute. Are you suggesting that if people had to qualify with their actual bills, they wouldn't qualify? <laughs> well, under current guidelines, but I so what it needs I think almost is, a system overhaul. Yeah, guidelines right? would have to be adjusted to account for all those debts we didn't use to factor in. Because then you know you get. I I talk about this from time to time. I, I have an outrageously expensive electric bill that I can't seem to get my arms around, and my house is too shady for solar. But if you looked at my qualification, if you if utilities showed on the credit report, and I, I think it's a good idea, uh, might need a little bit of a system overhaul, but that could have an impact on me. My my, and I would I would think a lender would want to know it. My utility bill for my electric alone is two hundred fifty bucks a month. So, wouldn't you want to know that if you were underwriting me? I mean, that's essentially a car payment. So. Yeah. <laughs> That's a big bill. And historically, that's what it's been for years now for me. I can't shake it. So that seems like something that should be taken into consideration. I mean, this is why we do, like you said earlier in the show, that affordable housing is up to 30% of your income spent on housing. Um, this is why there's that other 70%. The other 70% of your income is for your meals, entertainment, utilities, recreation, all that other stuff. So it would we would need a little bit of a system overhaul to know how to kind of make it all work under the new reporting stuff. But I could see it be a little bit of a 
a, um, a struggle in that immediate change of like, whoa, okay, I just got Dan's credit. And ordinarily, Dan has his mortgage and then this is one incidental credit card. But now I got a cell phone and a gas bill, a water bill, a trash bill, electric bill, you know, all these other little things that are going to need to be taken into consideration. Um, sort of going to change the scope of evaluating how people qualify. Luckily, there is an avenue to get qualified to buy a home. Um, we can do something called uh, where we add those types of alternative trade lines to your credit report. And if you have three of those trade lines, which most people do with a cell phone and a couple utilities, something like that, Rant. we get those added to your credit report and then you can qualify. But what it doesn't solve is the higher rate that you take on because your score is either lower due to the lack of depth or it just is non-existent yeah. due to the lack of depth. You take a, you, you end up getting a higher interest rate because of that. Right. So that part of it doesn't seem fair or right to me. Um, so yeah, I, there would have to be some kind of overhaul. Yeah. To, and that, that that's called alternative credit documentation. That was big in the early two thousands with um, like the alt a loans, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac have been pretty resistant of that. Um, and that's why I think there's this push now to say, okay, I understand why you don't want to do that. So the flip side of the coin is let's provide an avenue then for, you know, I mean, cause what if you said, how about not utilities? Let's do, let's not do utilities, but let's do rent. <laughs> All right. I'm just, I'm hung up on the utility because you said it earlier. <laughs> you said it earlier. You can pay on time forever of course. and it never shows up on your credit report until it, it's late. It doesn't impact your score, but the moment that you're delinquent, all of a sudden it's killing your score. It's right there front and center on your report yeah. as a big negative item. It's not fair. Right. So if you're, yeah, that, that's my feeling on it. If you're going to, if you have the ability to ruin my credit with reporting over this trade I have with you, yeah. then, then you should be giving me the positive lift right now is that I've been paying this on time. And by the way, this I see also as very useful um, for those people. Like I said, if you're trying to reestablish credit, like let's say during the recession, you lost your job, you had a, a bankruptcy. Okay. A lot of people did. A lot of good people did. I'd like to be able to look at your credit and go, Hey, look through that, that dude was never late on his rent ever. In fact, he hasn't been laid on rent in 21 years. That's useful information. Yeah, when you're qualifying for a mortgage, you think that's something that you'd want to know? Really useful information. <laughs> yeah. What we see is, well, yeah, you know, the, the credit cards were late and ultimately got discharged through the bankruptcy and the car and this stuff too. How do I know... What's your fiber, dude? What did you do? Are never you missed should a, I give you a money rent or not? In 20 years. And for us, we do home loans. I want to know I want to know how you do that. When things are tough, did you pay your rent? Did you pay your rent on time? You know, or maybe you paid your rent late. I don't know. But those are that's valuable info. I can't believe it's not already part of this. This is 2016. This should already be on the credit report. So anyway, the overall is coming. Good. I think by probably the end of next year, we're going to start to see a little bit more of these things reporting on the credit. There's some, I mean, there's some challenges to it. If you're a private landlord, like if you were renting out a studio in the back of your house, uh, how are you going to report to the bureaus? And, and also probably more importantly, how am I going to know that you're providing accurate reporting? Would you lie for me? 
say that you're my landlord and report positive credit reporting for me, you know, while I am living rent free with you, Uncle Dan. I mean, that's a thing. And the the big institutions, it's so arm's length that they don't they don't have a, a desire, or re, a reason, or need to lie to somebody. Um, so when you when you move it down and let the private people start uploading information to credit reporting agencies, I could see how it would get out of whack. So I would think if somebody called you up and said, hey, Mr. Renter, do you want your rent put it into your credit report? If the answer to that is yes, now you're going to, you know, give us 12 months of rent checks to show us that you paid it on time. And there could be some process where, you know, it's it's a little bit more reliable, the reporting. Um I don't know. That does seem challenging, that reporting aspect when you They're have... They're going to have to figure that out. You have millions of private landlords across the country. It, totally. It would be a challenge to get them to report. But the utilities... Easy, the, I mean, getting a PG&E to report... How hard is that? Or a AT&T or a Verizon. It's like automated. You know, those are huge companies yep. that should be able to do it. Yeah. So... Maybe we'll finally see the overhaul we need where we don't have to encourage our young people to go take on credit card debt to build a credit score. Yeah. How about you just manage your life bills, uh, the necessity bills well, and that should be good enough when it's time for you. Yeah, that's the funny thing. When you meet a young person who wants to buy a home and you see uh, you have one like student credit card with a $1,000 limit and that's your... That's, That's a problem. Yeah. No, you have to go out and get two more credit cards. You have to start using all three of them. I mean, that's the advice we have to give to try to get someone to get be able to qualify for a home loan. And it's, So one could argue that backwards. the system is flawed yeah. and maybe even setting up those young people for failure. Uh, I remember I was a broke college student. My parents couldn't afford to pay for my college. Uh, but, hey, during that first week of school, those little we don't deny anybody credit card tables that are out everywhere. Oh, yeah, right. You get a free T-shirt. Yeah. Or <laughs> a free something. If, if it was like a free a free Big Mac with this Visa card. And as a student, you'd be like, you know what? I, take two. I didn't know how I was going to buy my thousand dollars worth of books this week. Let me have that credit card. That's, he was not only broke, but he was baroque. Baroque. <laughs> That's really broke. Yeah. Broke. Not too poor to pay attention, but broke. All right, guys. It's 1032. We got to take another commercial break here. We have another half an hour, just slightly less to go. If you have questions, want to weigh in on the conversation, 543-8830. Dan said earlier, uh, we still need to get better at telling you guys. If, if you want that help, guys, if you want to get pre-approved or pre-qualified or just get your credit evaluated by somebody like us that knows what we're doing and can help you get on that home ownership path, um, reach out to us this week at the office, 543-LOAN, which is 543-5626. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. So stick around after this short break for more Mortgage Matters. To ask a question or make a comment, call 543-8830 or 800-549-5832. Mortgage Matters on KVEC News Talk 920. We'll be back after these messages from our sponsors. This is Jason Grody with Central Coast Lending, host of Mortgage Matters on KVEC. As mortgage experts, we can help you refinance your home or investment property. We can lower your rate, shorten your term, or get rid of your mortgage insurance. Don't miss the opportunity to improve your financial situation. Call Central Coast Lending today. Refi or refinance your home, just call 543 
Lending. Central Coast Lending is an equal housing opportunity real estate broker. California Bureau of Real Estate number 018-39608. NMLS number 328-358. Through seven presidential administrations, bull and bear markets, and unprecedented change, Blakesley and Blakesley has been here helping residents of the Central Coast reach their financial goals. So if you need retirement advice beyond Social Security, want to roll over an old 401k, or simply seek guidance through an important financial decision, visit Blakesley and Blakesley in San Luis Obispo. Paso Robles in Santa Maria. For the service you deserve and the advice you trust, member FINRA and SIPC. For those of us who live here on the Central Coast, we know this is a unique place to have a home. And for over 30 years, Patterson Realty has been a vital part of San Luis Obispo County. Patterson professionals have led the way in real estate by adapting to new market conditions to make sales happen. What they offer is the quality of their people, agents working just for you. Get the experts at Patterson Realty on your side. Experience the Patterson difference. Call 544-8662 or online at pattersonrealty.com. You're tuned in to Mortgage Matters, which airs every Saturday from 9 a.m. to 11 a.m. Your hosts, Dan and Jason from Central Coast Lending, want you to join the conversation by calling 800-549-5832. Now, back to the show. All right, welcome back. What's this song? How long we gotta wait for the voice track here? Spinners, working my way back to you. Maybe it is. I think it's right here. There you go. That's called posting it. I said, here it is, and then vocals came in. Unreal. We were we were right spot on with that, Jason. Perfect. Just want to let you know. Perfect. Oh boy. Okay. I don't want to talk about credit anymore. And that stuff's boring. No, I really don't. But, um, we I think did, it's good information. Yeah. In years past, we did like full shows about kind of credit. Yeah. And, I think uh, it's important to let people know, you know, we don't do credit repair. No. That's not what we do. There are companies out That's there. Very that, expensive, by the way. Yeah. It's expensive. But there are, I mean, if you are in a real, bad way credit wise there are companies that can help you solve that that's not what we do it's very time consuming but if you need guidance on how to get pre-qualified you know maybe six months down the line we that's where we can step in we've we've seen it all we know what it takes to qualify and we know how to um, position you to be able to qualify for a home loan so that's where we can step in and provide a little guidance for you yep well okay so um we were talking about housing earlier, but we we didn't get down into the weeds too much about some of these numbers that had come out in the last week or so here. Um, pending home sales, anyone? Um, pending home sales are contracted escrows. So they're a buyer and seller have agreed on terms, but they've not yet closed escrow. And we got a, uh, we track that metric. I mean, it, it talks to us about the, health of um the home sales market these numbers are getting a little bit squirrely by the way just due to the lack of volume if there are less houses going into contract then you're going to end up with less pending home sales which then look like um 
maybe the you know whenever you see something that looks like a weak showing but anyway pending home sales came out showing that um this one added to a string of much better than expected housing reports for last week 5.1% um versus expectations of just 0.6% growth and then also they revised the prior month. So that was for April. They revised the prior month higher as well. Um, so the takeaway there is that more people, uh, there are more homes that are quantified in that pending uh, under contract but not yet closed. And that we hope that what that means is that people are, uh, more people are selling their home, more people are buying homes. Um, Part of that, you know, at least in that metric is going to come move up buyers too. You know, if you bought a home a few years ago and now you're making more money at work or, you know, your size of your household has grown for any number of reasons, then you might sell your house and buy a new one. So we want to know that that contract activity is hanging strong and that number was a good one. Um, there's a few readings here. New home sales came out. Uh, new home sales hit an eight-year high um, as records hit an eight-year high too. Um, this is, I mean, this is reason to believe that maybe quarter two of this economy is going to shape up better than any of us expected. Um, the sales were estimated to be 520,000 new home sales at an annual pace, and it proved to be 619,000. That's the highest level, 619,000 new homes built um, at an annual pace. There is the highest level since 2008. The price increase for this month was the greatest price increase since January of 1992. That's kind of a trip, isn't it? 92? I mean, I, I almost don't have a relevant opinion about what the house economy was doing in 92. I remember pretty well what it did in those beginning part of the 2000s. It was going nuts how fast it was appreciating. Um, so in new new home sales are seeing, um, you know, pretty good numbers there. We also got a couple of reads, the Case and Scheller, uh, Case and Schiller. I don't know why that came out, Scheller. Case and Schiller Home Price Index gives us a read of um, housing prices across the U.S. This is a reading from March. This one always has a couple month lag. I think it's because they spend additional time compiling the data, making sure they get it so accurate. Um, so March over March, from March 15 to March 16, um, the average U.S. home price growth was robust at 5.4%. That's right in line with most of the other metrics that we see. Anywhere from 4.9 to 6 point something percent over the last year um, is pretty much right in the range. Um, FHFA, the Federal Home Finance Authority, woo, got it, um, rose 7% month over month in March. So that's just from February to March, 0.7%, creating an annual year-over-year -year increase of 6.1%.
that index is different than several of the others because that FHFA home price index takes into account refis. Um, they get the appraisals uploaded now. There's been some standardization in terms of the reports and the values of each field for condition and location and um, quality of construction, these different things. Now that a lot of that's been normalized, the reports as they're being uploaded into these portals have data that's um, uniform. So it's able to be adjusted, um, aggregated and sort of you know amalgamated into these numbers that help us have a greater confidence in uh, what the refi appraisals are looking like. So this is taken into consideration all loans that are done with agency, Fannie and Freddie um, type lending. And so you're seeing purchases and refis in there suggesting a 6.1% year over year. Wild. That's been a pretty consistent number for the last several months, about that 6% ballpark yeah and i keep thinking you know six percent that's better than any other investment i'm making right now so that's cool um i'd like to know and if you don't mind um, just drop me an email or maybe text me or something uh, right when that's gonna stop because i'm guessing <laughs> yeah just i want to know i want to i want to get my six percent for like however many years in a row i can before i like i'm gonna sell and be nomadic all right. Well, here might be the first sign oh, of a cooling. I I'm pulled, not ready to sell that. I pulled this article a couple weeks ago, um, and it was a it was an article caught my eye. It's talking about a home price cool down in the Silicon Valley. And grant, the, this is not the market for everyone, right? <laughs> I mean, these are multi million dollar properties because right. of the jobs that are around them. Uh, but what they're seeing is longer marketing times, price drops to attract buyers. Um, so, you know, they had one home in particular featured here that it was listed since the end of March. And, you know, it was homes in that area were, were, were being sold in two weeks or less. And now this one had been sitting for two months, still below average marketing time from what realtors you know, would tell you is normal, 90 to 180 days. Um, but they dropped the price of the $8 million home to $7.5 million. So, in, but it, it, it might be a sign of what's going on in the, the higher end, the luxury market that, you know, that there was even this comment here that said something about, uh, you know, this seemingly inexhaustible well of high-end buyers has proven exhaustible after all. How many people are there that can buy an $8 million house? I mean, yeah, you got your Beyonce's, yeah. Tom Brady. I continue um, to be surprised by how many people who you're not on a first name basis with that can afford those kinds of homes. There's a lot of people, especially in California, especially in the Bay Area. I don't know any people that can buy an $8 million house. Mm, you probably do. If I gave you an $8 million house, you'd probably lose it because of the taxes on it. <laughs> What's the property tax on an $8 million house? No, uh, 10 grand a month. Sorry. Probably 12 grand a month. That's huge. And that property tax, that's money right down the hole, man. I would, even if I could afford an $8 million house, I got to think I'm going to live in a. Do you see that? I mean, I. I I watch new listings around the county every day. 
I the houses for me that blow my mind a North County house for two million bucks. Some houses are fancy, and look at the yard. I couldn't even afford the land the landscaping bill, or the property taxes. The you know for two million bucks, what do you need with an eight million dollar? That's that's probably like a two thousand square foot house in Palo say, Alto up there. Yeah, that's where is that's it? Modest home. Well, this one was in Palo Alto, actually. Yeah. <clears throat> Every yeah. now and again, well, it's not just a. Small. I mean, it's a six-bedroom, five-bath home in Palo Alto, located. Oh, well, blocks, there's your problem. Located blocks from Stanford University. If you're trying to have a house in that price range, everybody knows you need more bathrooms than bedrooms. If that was an eight, if that was like a six-bedroom, right. eight-bathroom house, it would have sold quick for its asking price. Yeah, they designed it wrong. How come those rich people need so many bathrooms? By the way. Oh, because. They have long hallways. <laughs> you gotta have a pit stop when you're walking from the foyer to the <laughs> dining room. <laughs> well, no one wants to leave the bowling alley to go upstairs to go to the bathroom. Right. So we gotta put a bathroom next to the bowling alley in the basement. Of course, the bowling alley doesn't count as a bedroom, but the bathroom counts as a bathroom. That's crazy. Oh, but it excess. will be something interesting to keep our eye on. You know, that's one of the, the things with this show is we want to keep people informed of what's going on everywhere so that we don't get blindsided by, you know, all of a sudden one day housing yeah, falls out of favor. That, that 7% price reduction you had there on that $8 million Palo Alto house, um, just keeping you guys abreast. And if you're, <laughs> if you're looking for a smoking deal, we just got a 7% price reduction here. Wow, that's crazy, man. It just it, it reminds me of I it just opens my eyes to how wasteful that is. I mean, I was reading an article not too long ago and this was from like the um I don't know if it was the Bureau of Labor and Statistics. It was census data, I think, about Income and income levels, that top 1% or whatever of the nation, um, I, the numbers were honestly surprising to me was that, um, and I probably should dig them back up again, but it like you were in the top five or something percentile if you made more than 140 grand a year household. And when you got up into that top one percentile, it was like $400,000 or something like that. And I mean, as often as we see stuff like this and we see multi-million dollar houses, even here in, in slow County, um, like, I mean, I picked on that development in town earlier, the, the five or whatever row houses, the eight. brownstones, the yeah. eight of them for eight brownstones. Yeah, the sixteen million dollar project there, um, and I'm kind of like I, I, I want to meet the people that come out and buy these things because those guys, if you buy that, I mean, property taxes on a one point eight million dollar house, you're talking, you're gonna end up with property taxes of probably twenty, yeah, twenty some thousand bucks a year. So a you're. Yeah, two, two grand, grand a, a month, month just in property taxes. And then what's your how? I mean, how much is your homeowner's insurance on your two million dollar house? Probably three, four, five hundred bucks a month. 
So you just you start to add this stuff up, and it's like, yeah, that's a, the people are living a whole nother level. And if one percent, the top one percent, nation's highest earners, that line is at four hundred grand. That's a lot of money. Don't get me wrong. If you're making four hundred grand a year, you're doing pretty good. Uh, your house bills are twenty thousand bucks a month. That's crazy. That's a lot of money. And then you start looking around. There's so much of that. I would have thought the 1% line would have been higher. I would have thought the 1% line would have been at a million bucks a year. It makes me think here about this higher end market. If it if it does, I mean, if this is the beginning of a bigger trend, if we start seeing a cool down in the luxury market, does that... Is that a good sign that builders might start to refocus their energy in a different segment of the market where there's maybe more demand? You know, will they focus more on the the move up buyer or the entry level buyer? You know, I, I still think it comes down to can they make money even doing it? I've kicked this idea around with a few different developers locally. I think that they're in order for us to solve some of these problems, there's going to need to be a, um, a pretty creative approach. Uh, back when I was underwriting loans nationally, um, you get these property types. All right. So I'm a, I, I've never lived out of California. I'm a California guy. I just, there's stuff that happens on the East coast that, um, I was first exposed to when I was underwriting loans where, um, like for example, these like co-ops where, it's this multi-story building, sometimes with hundreds of units in it. I mean, almost think hotel, okay? And as an owner of the co-op, you're basically a stock owner of the building. So you, you get your unit or whatever, but you're, it's, a, it's part of a, like a cooperatively owned building that's kind of a business providing shelter for its stockholders. And... Those are kind of complicated loan stuff, especially for people here in California. We're like, we don't have that. So I started thinking, well, maybe that's part of the opportunity here. Um, I wonder if you could, because what if the different employers like Amazon, MindBody, PGE, whoever, kind of came together and created a company that was like a holding for a co-op where you could build... 600 800 square foot units within a building somewhere in our county or somewhere in our cities and you started to make workforce housing that way because we're not building workforce housing that's a big challenge i just think i i wonder especially like here in slow we like to be the cutting edge of banning smoking and banning styrofoam and you know banning having a dog or whatever all these weird like crazy cutting edge rules Maybe we should try to be cutting edge on having something like that, figuring out how to solve a workforce housing problem in a big way. And I, <laughs> there's got to be some way to do it. I love, you know, there's all these different committees and groups that are focused on workforce housing. And, you know, you, always this question, like this week I got selected for a survey in Morro Bay, um, some several, you know, I don't know what percentage of households in Morro Bay got selected for this thing, but there's a lot of questions on there about, you know, do we need more workforce housing? Well, yeah, we do. More affordable workforce housing. There's not a lot of that around here. 
But how do you get it? It's not like we just all decide we need it. So well, then this it is why comes. I started it's talking about it. Well, you got to incent, you got to incent the developers, the private parties, to want to make that investment to do that thing. I don't and, see the co-op as a reasonable option. You're, I mean, you, what you're talking about is something you see all over, like Florida, Miami, these high-rise co-ops where they're like. 20, 30, 40 story buildings and you can get those. That's not reality here in San Luis Obispo County. You're not going to see a big high rise well, co-op. But what if like over off of Broad in the tank farm area where there's where it's kind of almost industri not industrial, but like, a, you know, office tall buildings anyway. I mean, those are 50 to 75 foot buildings over there, I think, anyway. Maybe, maybe not. Yeah, Some of them are big. It's tough to get it. I mean, is but there anything the airport, really over three or four stories here? Yeah, there are. Yeah. But point being, the county, I mean, they know we need workforce housing. This, this is the funny thing. You can go to any one of these bodies. You serve on a board, an advisory committee, whatever. Everybody has the same discussion. We know we need workforce housing. I mean, city staff, county staff, the planners, they all know it. The architects know it. The builders know it. Everybody knows it. But it's a very difficult thing to do because the land is expensive and then the entitlements process is an expensive, drawn out. It's exhaustive, too. By the time you go through architectural review committee and this committee and that committee and the we don't like the color of your paint committee and the, you know, yeah, we're going to let you go to four stories, but it's got to look like a wedding cake. So on the top story, all you can have is a bell tower instead of, you know, having a full footprint Um of housing up on that fourth floor kind of thing. Um, everybody knows you need it. So would it be that hard of a sell to take a chunk of land that's over the air by the airport or in one of those centers and build a building that, you know, like in, in that style, a four story building that contained 600 workforce housing units that were cooperatively owned. I mean, if you took out to fundraise it, I think you could fundraise it. By getting people, you know, companies that want workforce housing, grants, subsidies. I mean, you could even, it seems to me like it's so possible, yet there's no focus or, you know, there's no movement afoot to do that. It's always like, well, we just need to get lower fees from planning or we need somebody to donate land where we can have another splash in the pond of adding these four units of affordable housing or or whatever. But I mean, I'm talking about something that's probably only appealing to people that are trying to live affordably while they work in slow. A 600 or 800 square foot place, you're not going to have a yard. You're not going to have like a, a balcony view. This is going to be actual affordable workforce housing where if you built that building, a 40,000 square foot building, whatever it turned out to be, that the people that lived in there got to pay, you know, 500 bucks for their 800 square foot apartment because that's, that's what it is. So... You know, you're talking about this idea of co-op or this idea of, of creating density by having taller structures that hold people. But yet the projects I see, like we had someone on talking about the project out by the yeah. airport. You know, th what they're talking about are smaller, smaller lot size, you know, zero lot line type units out there. But we're not talking higher. We're talking like more single family home style or PUD style homes on land and it doesn't seem like that's the way to 
create the well as long as it's being left right now to right well and as long as it's being left to the developer to size up where he can make a profit this is why we keep getting the same kind of developments cram them in they're two stories you know you got a strip in the front a strip down the side a strip in the back and otherwise it's just you know it's dense and all that but it's still not coming out affordable yeah they're trying to like they're trying to keep the american dream of the front yard and the you know that kind of style but they're they're squeezing it on a smaller lot rather than just fully embracing the need for affordable homes and let's build up a few stories and abandon this idea of the of the single family home that should be a different type of buyer i think it's possible maybe somebody that's listening today wants to help spearhead the committee but um i think it's possible and i think it's something you could convince the city or county to get behind to do something like never been done in slow county before and then have it funded by private businesses you know anyway that's that's a pipe dream Guys, if you want that loan help, if you want to buy a house or uh, a vacation home, a piece of investment property, if you want to be um, realize that dream of being a first-time home buyer, reach out to us. We'd love to help you with that. The number to our office is 543-LOAN, 543-5626. You can also go to the web, centralcoastlending.com is where you'll find us. We've got plenty of resources there. Uh, we're really interested in just competing. I mean, if you've got a, a transaction you're working anywhere else, let us throw our eyes across it and give you our best bid. Um, we beat regularly beat the big banks and those big internet companies. So 543 Loan, thanks much for being with us. Have a great day. We'll see you next week with more Mortgage Matters.